0: Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 66 of the podcast, the topic is bridging the physical digital divide in industrial tech. Our guest is Roni Kubat, CTO and co-founder of Tulip. In this conversation, we talk about why it took so long to build TULIP from the demo that I saw at MIT in 2013 to the company it is today. We discuss the complexity of the shop floor with case studies from the machine tool industry and programming in a physical digital environment. What does that mean and what does digital lean mean and augmentation Is that also changing? Enabling the manufacturing workforce to improve efficiencies and share best practices and reduce downtime and increase the consistency and safety in their manual processes is all happening. What's next in industrial tech? Roni, how are you? Good, how are you? Look, I'm excited to talk to you. I can't believe it's been... So long, you know. Um, you and I connected back uh, at uh, when I guess you were just spinning out of MIT uh, with Tulip, and then since I've been working with Tulip, we have barely seen each other. Where have you been, and where have I been?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, it was it was maybe like uh, six or seven years ago, um, and we were uh spending a bunch of time back with uh at MIT and through the ILP there and that's that's when we, we first met and then uh you know you came to, to it but you came in the middle of a pandemic so <laughs> <laughs> you haven't I uh, haven't been able to you know spend a time and also I you know moved to Germany for for seven months uh, which also made it more difficult so um uh, but you know it's good to be back back home
0: yeah. No, we'll get to that, uh, Ronnie, I, I must say, here's how I wanted to start. So, you, uh, we haven't talked about this, but I think you grew up in Massachusetts. Is that right? You went to Lincoln Sudbury yeah. High School?
1: That's right. Uh, home of They Might Be Giants.
0: <laughs> exactly but then things took a different path i must say you know for de- your journey to four degrees at mit that's that's um i'm not going to sugarcoat it it's hard to compete with not that i'm competing but i could imagine some people getting a little intimidated by four mit degrees what, what went into your head um you just uh, wanted to ga- gather yeah. degrees
1: <laughs> it's a collection no the um the short of it was um you know, i started out in uh so at, M- at MIT there's um, there's both computer science and electrical engineering and then there's sort of a joint uh, program sort of in between in between the two of them um, and I, I wanted to do you know robotics for the longest time and so I I started out in this in the joint program uh, realized after a couple of years that actually um, I hadn't actually taken any double classes beyond the initial required ones and so you know realized that it was actually just computer science Um but, uh, you know, back in the undergraduate days, um, you know, one of the reasons I ended up at MIT was, uh, because of this one class at the time, it was called 270. It cool. Called two double seven. It was, uh, you know, it's the famous, uh, class where they give you a box of parts and you build a machine in the course of the semester to do some competition. And I remember, you know seeing uh being in middle school and seeing scientific american frontiers and they would showcase uh 270 i was like i i have to go there so to be there you have to be to take that class you have to be a mechanical engineering uh major so i had to add mechanical engineering to take class and then you know ended up uh on the uh the five-year plan to to finish that off (laughs) um so that was uh that's how i ended up in in the undergraduate days and then um and after taking some time away um, and getting bored with uh, what I was doing out there in the in the, in the real world, realized uh, uh, it was time to go back to you know more engage my brain and go back to grad school. But um, didn't anticipate coming back to MIT, um, but ended up there nonetheless. <laughs> so. Um, too. Yeah,
0: I mean, we'll get to some of the stuff you did in between. I don't exactly know the timing, uh, and, you know, and, and we'll talk specifically about what happened, you know, so between CSAIL, so you you then went back for, for a grad degree at uh, uh, the computer science and AI lab and then went to the media lab. But before that, you, you've you been, throughout uh, your time, you've been basically a playwright, I understand, and you've had uh, a stint as a science advisor to Hollywood film productions how, when did that happen?
1: Um, it happened during uh, undergraduate time. So I've always been, had there's an art side to me. Um, you know, I'm like a, you know, like many uh, e- engineers, like uh, sci-fi buff, and uh, you know, the, the first the first generation of Star Wars fans. Um, and uh, so even throughout uh, throughout my undergraduate time, uh, drawn drawn to the arts and for me that, uh, that manifested through theater and through, uh, through cinema. Um, so I spent, uh, you know, my summer internships were spent out in, in Los Angeles. Um, I was fantastically lucky to be in the right place at the, at the right time. Um, and was able to, to work on a couple of projects, um, and, and, and meet some very generous, uh, Art directors and production designers, um, who both sort of took me under their wing, um, and had a real affinity for um, giving a a truthiness, a scientific truthiness to the to the projects they're working on. And so,
0: so you were advising on. uh, I mean, this is what I've gathered. an untitled uh, Mars film by uh, James Cameron that I believe maybe didn't get produced in the end. And then K-19, The Widowmaker. Uh, it's a Catherine Bigelow movie. And then Blade 3, David Goyer. And then lastly on Stepford Wives with Frank Oz. Just one, one of those. What, what was sort of interesting about you know any, any one of those? Were you literally advising them on what tech is possible to do versus what is truly sci-fi? Is that kind of the role of a science advisor? Yeah, or or it, even just how to visualize it correctly.
1: Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit of both. So, um, for example, on the James Cameron project, which was uh, you know, this, is, uh, this is now a, a long time ago. This was uh, before before I think work even began on on Avatar. Um, so there, I was. I it, the, the short of it is is that I was a kid with like a tremendous amount of chutzpah, and. Uh, you know, I was working elsewhere in the building and would like peek my head into the, the room of the art department and uh, start saying, uh, oh, I would do it this other way. This doesn't make sense. And um, and I was very lucky uh, that uh, Mike Novotny, the production designer, um, brought me on as to be um, sort of to, to give the, the scientific context around the kinds of Designs that they they were working on, um, because Cameron is someone who really cares a lot about um, being truthful to uh, to the science, because the the realism is uh, is critical to the to the storytelling and being for the audience to be immersed into whatever that that world is. Um, and so I was working with with the art department um, there in in that regard, and then. Uh, Mike Novotny was production designer as well for K-19. Um, and so I remember being in the middle of some architecture class and getting a phone call and saying, uh, you know, some, some set designer asked me, so, you know, how do... Uh, Russian torpedoes work. <laughs>
0: <have no>
1: idea. <laughs> I'll find out for you. Oh
0: yeah. Come to think of it.
1: Right. So, so in a sense, like being, uh, you know, in those those experiences again, was working with with art departments. Um, a key thing is having um, both an understanding of what's plausible, what's what has a sense of, of realism. But there's a um, there's a storytelling aspect of this because. And a lot, you know, the audience ultimately doesn't care most of the time, they care about having a good story. And so if there is a complex idea or um, that needs to be explained, so in the, in the case of K-19, it was, it's a true story of, a, of an accident aboard a, a Russian submarine, then um, how can you Share, like, explain the complexity in a way that a general audience member will understand to understand the stakes of what's going on by the characters um, or by, by the people that are involved. Um, that's like one one side of it. The, the other side of it is that there is so much incredible things that are happening in the real world and in, in the sciences and engineering that bringing some of those ideas um, can sort of create unique stories. Uh, that's more on the speculative side, whether it be the Mars Project or Stepford Wives or, or Blade Three and things like that.
0: Look, I'd I'd love to keep talking about this. Uh, this is extremely interesting. I'm sure many, many an engineer would love to have had that role, even to dip into f- it for a second, because. Um, I, I guess it really just com- combines, right? It combines deep science with communication, with obviously a, a little bit of sci-fi sort of intermixed. But I wanted to maybe today to use it to to transition to, to then, you know, you are the CTO currently at Tulip. And uh, I'm curious because Tulip is also not just a typical digital company. It, it is very much a challenge of, What truth and reality is on, uh, the shop floor and with physical systems. So I wondered, uh, you know, first of all, you know, what, what do you actually do in this uh, particular capacity? But also like, what are you bringing with you in your backpack of, you know, from MIT, but also from this kind of real world? slash uh, fictional uh, world that we were just talking about. Is there anything at all that has inspired you and, and has helped you as you've been building and co-founding Tulip?
1: Yeah, so I think that the CTO is like a, a very, um, you know, as, as a title, it can mean incredibly different things on, in different companies. But what it is here at Tulip is um, I think part part of a big part of it is looking towards um, what is the the future, not at, at a at a you know a second horizon, right? So in a lot of ways think about um, um, different l- levels of uh, technology. So, for example, um, you know. Uh, NASA has the uh, technology readiness levels um, that vary from something that's basic research and, uh, you know, first indicators to something that's uh, flight ready, right, at the other end of the spectrum. And so you can think about, uh, you know, technology readiness levels or another way of mechanism, way of thinking about this is in like, uh, you know, horizon one, horizon two sort of types of technology that are horizon one are things that are really in the immediate near future that you can see to build and horizon two is a little farther fetched, farther, farther afield, but it was directionally where you want to go. So in, in the, in my role as, as CTO, it's looking at the farther horizon type, uh, type technologies or directions, a little bit of um, tea leaf reading, of, uh where we should where we should go where sh- we should begin to get an um, experience and expertise in and think on them how would the impact on product be um, in in the longer term hmm. um the kind of uh the first I'd say like um, the first sort of manifestation of that within within tulip, uh, came from you know work that was very uh, near and dear to me from the uh, from grad school, which was what ended up being the uh, computer vision related features that are part part of tulip um, I wanted
0: to get to the computer vision part because one of the you know there there's always this talk of you know what it, what's a good demo. I thought that the demo for tulip the initial uh, vision demo for tulip that i saw i guess the first time perhaps in your headquarters when, when you were just f- five employees or something was one of the de- demos of the decade for me i truly saw what you were trying to build and i thought this is very very unusual it's also extremely compelling and and, and very very hard to do at the same time i wanted to ask you so when you created that demo did you realize how long it would take to turn that into a product, which I guess it actually shipped this spring, right? So that's, what, seven, eight years later. And then why did it so take so long? Was, was that demo really your Hollywood self, meaning you knew? that you weren't going to be able to deliver that product the next year to anybody, clients or investors or, or even within the team? Like You knew that that was truly a demo? Or is it just that in order to create an industrial company of that scale that you are now creating, you sort of have to awe people with a bit of sci-fi? And then obviously, <laughs> kudos to, to Tulip, it is now built to a certain extent. I, just comment a little on the demo. I'm not the first, by the way, who has been super impressed by that demo. Obviously, it must have been part of the first clients. It must have been, you know, getting investors on board. Mm-hmm. It was a smashingly good demo.
1: It was a great demo. So the, uh, you know, I think that, the, that that's really the the Media Lab uh, DNA coming through, right? Um, and so the MIT Media Lab is, you know, has had for, you know, a long time a culture, the, the, the demo or die culture. Um, and so having... You know, creating a, a magical reality in a sense, as, as driven by by real technology is, is like that's the train, that's part of the training effectively that you get um, at the Media Lab. The productization part of it, the, the how long it took us to get to something where it really was, um, you know, now how it's manifest within Tulip, um, really speaks to the. The real demands of um, the industrial setting, where it's you know you can't be ninety nine percent good, right? Imagine you're working on your tablet, and one out of a hundred times your your mouse press or your finger press on the on the screen just like doesn't register or doesn't something wrong. Like how long would it take you before you threw it against the wall and like never picked it up again?
0: You- yeah, not very long. I had some of that happen, and obviously, sometimes it's the battery. Other times, it's it is truly a defect. But yes, you get you go completely ballistic, even if it is one in a
1: hundred. Right. So you you need to have like it's getting that last that last fraction of um, performance uh, accuracy, what have you. That is that is the the hard part that takes you from something that you can imagine a future to something you can work with day to day. Um. And that's that. There's just a ton of work that's part of it. The other thing that happened uh, between um, you know those very very early demos and today was, um, I guess, a recognition of the tremendous amount of low hanging fruit that's out there within the industrial space. That um, you know just the fact that so much is still, still, still on paper and in a kind of mind boggling way that. You know, if you think about uh, making for a s- sustainable deployment of any kind of new idea, new paradigm into um, into an industry, you, you have to take it incrementally because, you know, the factories are not going to shut down and, like, stop working for a while while you do stuff like They have to keep going. And you have – it's as much uh, – you know, an introduction of a new technology is as much a, a person-related change management um, challenge as it is the pure tech. And so with with all the low-hanging fruit that's out there and, um, you know, the requirements for both the change within the organizations as well as for, you know, well-performing products um, – that is uh, you know, the, wh- why we sort of with the direction we did. I have to add to that as well is that, you know, since, since we started to whatever it was uh, seven years ago or so, um, that's, uh, that's a, a, a lot of uh, performance increase just from pure computer uh, performance increase that, that happened during that time period. And also an enormous amount of research uh, in, in computer vision Um, that has occurred since then that we were able to take um, and and bring into the product. You know, the whole, uh, you know, the things like, uh, you know, neural networks, which have been around for decades and decades and decades, made some really important leaps because uh, all of a sudden you could reuse graphic cards to start training these networks. And also the techniques by which you were able to train them became different. And also the amount of memory that you could have on board you know, massively expanded. And all of a sudden, things that were uh, impossible before became not only possible, but really accurate and performant and inexpensive enough to be able to deploy.
0: It's funny you say that because you also said to me the other day that current AI is mostly fancy regression. So you, you're combining, I guess, your perspective on, you know, there, on, on when it comes to kind of hard compute on very specific items like like vision, there's been progress, but then you, you're also a bit of a myth debunker, right? You're not just you know sci-fi in the clouds kind of a person. So you're also pretty realistic on AI versus machine learning. Like there, I mean, is that kind of how you would divide it? There's a lot of good machine learning happening, but this like fantastic sci-fi world of true AI, you're not enormously optimistic that we're there yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's um, I'm I'm. <laughs> It's a it's a fool's errand in some ways to to really predict the future because you're just going to be wrong in a lot of ways. I mean, you've discussed it on on your podcast as well, the challenges of it. So I'm I am continually surprised when some new result comes out. Um, but you know, uh, for example, you know the one you know, of the best known recent advances is GPT three, which is a text based, in um, fact, a text completion engine trained on the internet um which you know you can start typing something it'll complete uh, complete an answer in a in a very shocking and surprising way and how how effective it is but that's not um that that is a fancy regression model in in a sense it's like given some trajectory in this super duper high dimensional space how would that continue that's just regression right um it doesn't have a inherent uh, understanding of uh, you know in the in the sense of intelligence in the same way that we think about human intelligence. Truly, I mean, for me, as someone who's uh, spent a lot of time thinking about robotics and what that means, um, you know, for me, I think of embodiment as being a critical factor in in, in having a true intelligence. Because um, you know, to give, to give you kind of an example of that um you know a, a notion of of intelligence of you know words uh, you could say is like oh you, you, what is a what is a, a word it's, you define it in terms of other words in like a dictionary uh, but you end up with circular dependencies um, that, that arise from that that are not grounded into a physical reality and therefore it's hard to make inferences on them so um you know uh, ultimately if you if you're describing uh say the definition of push, right? You say, to apply a force uh, against another object, blah, blah, blah just in of words. But really what it means is to push something as there's an experiential aspect of it, of an engagement of muscles that allow me to ground that that word into the, the physical world. Um, and so I don't, I truly don't see uh, any, I see that embodiment as a hard, hard requirement for and for Real intelligence within the island. And up until then, it's a lot of fancy regression. And especially when it comes to um, the industrial setting, um, There's uh, there's been, uh, you know, just what, what I've heard from from uh, from our customers, from folks that are uh, uh, working in factories, they may have these projects. This, we're going to outfit everything with sensors, and the sensors are going to have these models of performance, blah blah blah, and then uh, six months later, after it's all been outfitted, they they get a they learn something that you know Joe on the floor knows already because oh yeah, it makes the noise. I know I need to tweak the knob here, right? There's an expertise that that is um, uh, that they it's not necessarily telling them something really new, and so when thinking about you know, in my role, CTO, what's the what's what is the future direction that we need to take? Tulip, from the product perspective, is um, what are the things that will ultimately be really meaningful and uh, special, and ultimately magical in in a sense um, that are providing um, a, a solve uh, a solve for for a pain, a real pain that. That uh, that people have, um, or really, what boils down to, how we're making lives easier for people, or making them more efficient, or saving them money, or or all that.
0: Roni, talk to me then uh, with with this context, because there's also, by the way, another aspect of the Media Lab you guys come out of, uh, right? Patty May's uh, lab of humanistic AI. So you've thought really deeply with her, and you know, I'm sure the teams about what. It actually means to implement technology, but also in the real world. And, you know, I've, I've understood that in in building out Tulip, you spent quite a bit of time asking people on shop floors, you know, what might be useful. It wasn't just a kind of lab demos, but anyway, right now Tulip has sort of launched this concept of frontline operations as an emerging industrial category what is that all about from from your perspective so let me just line up the question by saying you know the manufacturing sector for one you know is one kind of loaded with all these three and four letter acronyms and there are all these various types of systems that somehow refer to I guess, challenges and functions that are needed on the shop floor in terms of productivity, efficiency, and to some extent, larger, uh, you know, beyond the factory, onto supply chains and other things. What does frontline operations mean? Um, And to what extent is it a pure sort of technology play versus, uh, you know, what you've been talking about earlier, this integration of or really, the demands of people on the shop floor and, and other places, as opposed to just a technology idea.
1: Yeah, um, a lot to unpack there. So I think you know the one, one like a simple uh, division that you know you could say for frontline. What is frontline operations? Is um, people who don't work at a desk, right? And by by not working at a desk. Like so, the 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 environment in which they interact with is uh, typically, you know, not going to be a virtual world. So like the things that what your computers do great, and for all of the information workers out there, the people who do work at desks, like we can be effectively immersed within the the four four sides of our screen, and you can do lots of cool stuff within those, you know, within the within within the context of the screen, um, but it's 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 bounded by, by that ultimately. Um, and when your, your day-to-day work is outside of that screen, then that, how do you cross that boundary and get whatever information that you need or help that you need or connectivity to other people, to other systems or whatever, basically breaking that boundary becomes, um, uh, becomes the, the, the real challenge. Um, and so it, it, I think that the the, the training that uh, that we we got in the in the Media Lab, specifically in, in Patty's group, uh, which is about uh, novel uh, and humanistic user interfaces that are breaking these the, the, the four walls, so to speak, of uh, of the screen, um, is uh, sort of critical and embedded in in, our, in the DNA of this, this company like um you know when whenever i would go and i mean this obviously hasn't happened very much during the pandemic but whenever i would go and visit um visit different sites different factories and, and the like the the critical thing for me the thing i always ask for is like let's i want to want to go to go to the floor um you know and, and sort of from the uh, from the lean perspective, you know, go to Gemba and, and be on the floor and talk to the people who are actually doing doing the work to understand their pain so that, you know, thinking on like, how can you reimagine what, it, what that work is in, a, in an augmented form, in one where it's augmented because you're still in the physical world doing stuff, but now you have access to the world's information through some kind of digital means and that world can, you know, that digital world can then speak back to the physical environment that you're in, in a way that is assisting you, that's like, you know, preventing mistakes, uh, that's giving you access to expertise, that's notifying other parts that you are not you know you can't shout loud enough to reach the other side of the factory or whatever that needs someone needs to be informed um so so that sort of get, back, get to your to your so, question so Ronnie then uh,
0: help me understand why isn't a lot of that the you earlier mentioned this term sort of low, lower hanging fruit so the, the all of these things that are needed on the shop floor and you know famously a lot of it is sort of tribal knowledge it is some individual that knows it and then he he or she s- shares it with people and then they either sort of implement it and do it or it might just remain with that one person so part of it is sort of about kind of work instructions and that sort of idea but what are the tasks that you discovered were such low-hanging fruits that were actually not being captured so some of it was you, you refer to this paper-based reality But but what are the tasks that these existing computer systems? Because you're not the first computer system on the shop floor. It's just sort of striking to me that uh, there have been computer systems and control systems, certainly for decades on the factory floor, where there have been machines and there have been systems controlling those machines and humans interacting with those machines, mostly not remotely, but then, you know, certainly the last decade remotely. what is it that a tulip type system adds to that process? What is the difference? If people just want to understand one difference,
1: so uh, it's a it's a it's a bit subtle but a really important distinction. You're right; like the computer systems have been there on the, on the shop for for a long, 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 long time, right? Um, especially true in places of of automation, whether it be like a, a machine that's making Coke bottles or. Um, or a robust home car, whatever. Um, but those um, the touch points to the people that are doing doing the work um, they're interfaces that are designed for the machines. They're not interfaces designed for the people, um, and that's the key ki- key kind of key distinction, right? Um, in that, um, w- what you can do today, one, you know, frankly, it's just like cheaper because you can take a buy a a tablet uh for a hundred dollars or something like that and outfit every single station where work is happening with uh with an interface that might not have been possible before um but then how do you design the experience of using that um that device in a way which is really serving serving the people that are part of it and it Obviously, it needs to serve the process or whatever, whether it be collecting some quality information or, or or the like. Um, um, So, I think that you know, in that low-hanging fruit, in the the things that are the low-hanging fruit. So, like uh, very simple things like uh, collecting uh, quality data. I've been in factories where um, you have um, you know work happening many different stations. They end up in some, all the finished goods end up at, at a quality station and they do a sampling or they do, uh, you know, each piece gets inspected and then someone makes a tally mark uh, for what that is and the impact for that, you know, in that, in that the existing system is that if they're recording that information on uh, paper then there's no visibility in any kind of real time visibility to to make changes uh, if, if warranted, right? So it requires... The you know the, the person collecting the quality to detect that there is some kind of trend or the like raise their hand stop the line and you know address that quality issue um, versus having a real time visibility on it which is useful for like everybody in in the plant um, to understand. Um,
0: but help me, Ronnie, explain why the existing electronic systems didn't handle that? Because to to someone, I guess, like me, who hasn't spent years and years on the factory floors, I've been on factory floors, but, you know, I, I kind of entered this industrial stage of my career during the pandemic. So it's definitely not spending my life on factory floors. How is it that these existing systems weren't able to do something that sounds so simple to me in principle, just gathering some data and inputting it uh, digitally and then spreading that around the shop floor. I mean surely there were systems where they was yeah. it was that well, entered after the they, fact
1: typically in factories. So it could be, you know, it's not saying that those systems don't exist. The problem the problem that exists in the manufacturing world is that every factory is its own unique special snowflake because their process is unique to their product being made. And so a generic a generic system does not fit. It doesn't get you the real information that you need in that, that moment. It gets you some bits maybe, or, or you actually have to, have to have somebody write or configure the system in order to get that information. And, you know, hey, next week, because you you as a factory leader are a true practitioner of lean, you're like willing to change and As soon as you have a someone has an idea on how to increase your your efficiency, reduce your waste, um, improve your quality, and if your systems are static or, or hard and expensive to change, then you can't really effectively do that. And so you go back to paper. Why? Because I can uh, make a template and print it on the laser printer every day, and that's like super easy to change. With, you know, you, the flexibility that you get with paper you, it comes with the downsides of lack of visibility, the data entry that needs to come in, and, and things like that.
0: Can you give me an example of of some real life clients uh, and how they you know discover Tulip and are using Tulip, and and, and maybe uh, in in some surprising ways to you? Because it seems to me that what you're telling me is that the Tulip platform, the way you built it, it is uh, s- easy enough to use that uh, the customer can to some extent decide what they want to use it for. It's not like the system, the system is built for the client. It's not a system that it requires, you know, this enormously long implementation where you have to actually change every process to uh, conform to the system. It's the other way around. So that would lead me to the question, give me an example of a client that have been working that you've been working with. And what are the things that they, thought they would use it truly for? And then what did they, you know, actually end up using it for that same purpose
1: that they thought? Yeah. So, um, so during this, during this pandemic, I spent, um, I mentioned, it, uh, a few months out in Germany working with our, um, our partner, DMG Mori, uh, for those that, you know, f- folks who are not familiar with, with DMG Mori, um, they make, uh, very high, high precision machine tools. So, uh, think uh, you know five-axis mills and and lathes. The sort of the tools that are used to um, cut the artificial hips out of titanium that um, you know that a, a surgeon might uh, might implant. They're you know bespoke to um, to the user or patient, right? Or it could be uh, the molds that are used uh, cutting the molds that are used to make car doors, or whatever. So um, in within their factories, uh, they have you know they're making very large, very very complex pieces of, of machinery with just a ton of you know really moving parts that need to get uh, get get assembled um, for which they have um, you know it's really it's um, a lot of a lot of people a lot of hand hand assembly because of the complexity of these uh, devices. Um, And even within the one plant, they have um, really interesting coordination challenges because every machine is made per order. Um, And so, um, you know, scheduling everything together so that all the right pieces are put together, you know, there and and ready for assembly at the right moment, right? Um, So they they have have an an MES system, which is handling some of the the coordination of this but they used um, two in one one place where they had um, basically a, an assembly for the, the pallet on which the, the end part gets gets made um, and then that gets you know attached to the the main um, main part of the machine and they're completely separate separate buildings within the facility they're I don't know they're like a half a kilometer apart from from each other um, and so they would use Tulip to see what what do I need to do today? Where 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 am I at? And measure measuring effectively like what's what's on what's on deck? Where where am I in this assembly? That would then give visibility to the other side of the facility to know what do they need to prep and when do they need to prep it, um, so that in the moment when the you know the finished subassembly arrives, they're able to to, to immediately go into it, right? I mean, like, I wouldn't have. I don't know their process deeply enough to be able to predict like how they w- they would use it. Um, but the folks on their implementation team, their their manufacturing engineers, they they know the they know the the bottlenecks so intimately and the pains because they are they are going to the floor and talking to that the operators that are doing doing the work and they hear like oh, I'm sitting there waiting for part. I don't know if it's going to be ready. Before lunch, after lunch, whatever, to be able to, you know, get my cranes, tools, whatever, set up. Um, they know that pain well enough to be able to create that, that solution, which is now, you know, up on the big board and things like that. And that, that's like w- one example of, you know, I don't know, hundreds of different use cases. They have their one, one facility um, within, you know... So, and, and this
0: kind of stuff then, Brony, hasn't been happening before because one of the things that I'm, I guess I'm trying to understand, there's, there's a lot of attention around uh, obviously software and how fast software moves. And we've talked a little bit about you know AI that is certainly in some uh, limited use cases have made massive progress. But then, of course, on the consumer side, at least… The general public and the media thinks like, you know, we have moved light years in, in, in kind of digitalization. But then when you start talking about these industrial use cases, it feels like we're moving snail pace. But on the other hand, there is this, I guess, vision of industrial physical systems being connected digitally and then suddenly starting to make those same kinds of leaps. If you want to extrapolate from your experience now, you know going across this space and then going into these detailed use cases, but, but essentially allowing through your system to, to let individuals on the, on the floor that know these problems come up with clever solutions, what is the prospect to make truly big leaps beyond kind of efficiency tweaks that is what you've been talking about for now? Is is that completely out of the realm of possibility or is it just that systems have been so rigid and the moment you start designing them with kind of modern user interfaces and start using sort of these techniques that actually are adapting the system to humans, you can start
1: to make real progress? I feel like there are, um, the, the, the leaps we can catch you by surprise through the accumulation of lots of incremental things um, for sure. There are very few things that I think are um, uh, in sort of completely transformative and like give you like maybe a couple of quick examples. So I think that like the potential for um, additive manufacturing to completely change manufacturing on the whole is a, it's like a very real thing that is big, begun to be realized um
0: and tulip plays a little part in that too right can you enlighten me on on the interaction with of of certain tulips or use cases with with additive you you have clients that are actually using tulip to to enhance their additive process
1: yeah i mean we there we have clients that are using um tulip as a mechanism for monitoring their their print forms effectively um to understand um you know a lot of the the um the, the additive manufacturers it has different classes of problems and challenges that you face in order to get a high quality output um, so being able to uh, you know better collect and understand what what are what's actually happening on the form in order to make the tweaks and get um, get better results is like one one use case that is being used um, but to go back to your you know your earlier question on the the transformative uh, side of things so Uh, you know, one, one story um, in the the history from like more, more so not so much industrial revolution, but, uh, but later, later on was the, the profound change (coughs) that happened in manufacturing when electric motors came in. Now, you know, in the, in the old days, you know, you'd have mills that would be next to moving water. So they would get their power from moving water from the moving water that would lead to these, um, you know, long, uh, you know, pipes through the facility where there'd be spinning from the water wheel and then they would transmit their power to the tools, um, via pulleys. And that's where the work would happen. So that the factory was, you know, organized by, um, access Mm -hmm. to energy. Physically tethered, actually, to the energy source. Exactly. Um, so, um, yeah, electric motor comes comes along, and people start putting it into different machines. So, um, what's the pitch? How how do you sell an electric uh, an electric machine into a factory? Well, you can say things like, um, "Oh, yeah, it's going to be more efficient. You're going to have uh, less outages um, from a, a pulley breaking." And, um, you know, a drought, uh, making it so that you just don't have enough water to push all your machines or or, or whatever. Right. That's the, that's the sale, right. Um, the, the actual, you know, huge impact, uh, is that you can now rearrange your factory to follow the flow of goods and not the flow of power. And so that changed things profoundly. (laughs) Right. Um, so, when you think about the places where technology can impact m- manufacturing things, uh, whether it be um, additive that changes the way you think about automation uh, or the processes that, by which you're, you're making the physical goods, um, or the kind of um, uh, connectivity to the machines and the people and the, the digital physical uh, things, there are... That low-hanging fruit—the things like it's a—it's you know you don't have to oil your machines as much kind of uh, change, but there are also like the 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 potentially more impactful things we may not have even seen yet mm-hmm. because they are the, about the reorganizing the factory right. Kind of, kind of
0: it's interesting you mention it that way, Roni, because I was going to ask you about edge and edge devices. And certainly there's a whole industry there from telcos on to device producers. And <laughs> TULI, by the way, be- became one recently. Right? There's now a, a physical product uh, as part of the Tule portfolio too. But it it strikes me that what you're saying is that it's not the devices or even the network itself or even kind of individual components that are making the big difference. They're all just part of the picture. And then there is some sort of mysterious change that will 20 years later when we think about, you know, I don't know what we're going to call this, the the fourth or perhaps the fifth industrial revolution. When we talk about that in the future, uh, looking back, we won't be talking. Yes, there are enablers, but you're saying there's going to be some sort of uh, step change that's going to be the result of many, many small things that is very hard to really capture when we think about it right now. When we're in the moment, sort of a strange thing about about the future, I it's, guess.
1: It's, it's the it's the emergent uh, capabilities. It's like um, there there certainly were. Uh, writers and thinkers uh, who imagined um, what the fully connected world of uh, internet might be like long before the internet. Um, but I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I don't know if the, the folks at ARPANET were, were thinking about what would become Facebook.
0: Well, hopefully maybe not. <laughs> not. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I see your point. I see your point. Look, um I I wanted to close on this then Roni, just just a little bit more on on sort of where you think these are these things are going. So frontline op- operations, you know, according to to, to Chilip, is sort of this n- new thing where where there is uh, a a much more interactivity between the machines and the uh, you know and the people and ideally uh we're starting to think more about the people in order however to manipulate and use machines more more efficiently. Um where do you see really industrial tech moving or, or is it even not just going to be industrial tech? Do you think, uh, think that things that are moving are going to look very different, you know, even just sort of 10, 20 years from now? Are we not going to m- be conceptualizing factories the way we do? I mean, are they going to be truly distributed? Are they going to still be physical? And are these edge devices going to be these sort of micro factories, uh, you know, truly, truly at the edge, so advanced that we don't need a centralized infrastructure? What do you think about the whole concept that has really united uh, industry for so many years. Okay, fine. It was very tethered in the beginning, and then it's been gradually loosening and loosening. How real is this idea that we can truly decentralize, for example?
1: I think that there will always be, um, you know, and expertise will always be be valued for um, uh, whether it be expertise and skills or ability to create create something, um, that's not going to go go away into a fully distributed fashion, right? In the um, in the sense that you know, a uh, the the best battery maker will invest. Enormous, uh, um, you know, amounts into the intellectual capital and the facilities that are required to do that. Or any any silicon fab is is another kind of example of that. You're not going to have uh, maybe you'll have distributed silicon fabs uh, or, or the like, but the best, highest speed, lowest power processors are going to be coming out of some kind of uh, uh, specialized thing. You know, uh, say, same thing like you think even for like l- the larger physical goods, right? You want to make um, you want to make a car that's, um, you know, all the lines line up great and looks beautiful and it's very large and, and and like, I really think that you're not going to get away from the big, the big facilities that are stamping out. Now that of course is like connected to a global supply chain and, you know, to make uh, make the door of that car, you're, you know, that you're, you're making the door in, I don't know, in Georgia, but your molds for your door are cut in Canada and shipped out. So that's like. You know that level of specialization um, won't go away. Th- that said, there are um, there are a lot of things for where a distributed uh, manufacturing um, en- environment does make more sense. Like the full other end of the spectrum is like bespoke furniture, right? Um, where all I need is the raw materials of some wood and glue and the tools to put it together. And then I can make you, make you anything. Um, I think that the, the middle ground between those may have, you know, you'll see a, a swing towards maybe local, more local manufacturer, whether it be because of, um, uh, transportation costs or logistics, um, um, uh, optimizations can make it easier for um, the distribution of the raw materials or the finished goods uh, at a lower cost because in a more timely manner because of uh, easier logistics. I don't have to wait for uh, a month or or now, much longer, to get my goods from from China into the port of Los Angeles and, uh, you know, to my house in in Boston. Um, But at this, you know, Beyond uh, broad, broad proclamations like that i I may feel like um, I feel like uh, uh, it would be foolish of me to make uh, any real detailed <laughs> uh, guesses no
0: this is uh, fantastic toroni because it's it 's this kind of discussion I think that uh, hopefully brings the field forward in the sense that people get a real uh, idea of the challenges involved but also can can stretch their minds to see uh that there truly are breakthroughs that are that are being made last thing i wanted to maybe challenge you on is if uh, wouldn't it be nice to have a hollywood movie that actually entailed some sort of advanced industrial maybe maybe that will be created around tesla or, or or this new space age perhaps but uh um, I'm just curious, what, what do you think is currently, uh, what are the best Hollywood movies that actually capture any of the things that we've been talking about today? So, you know, aside from the movies you, you were sort of working on yourself, what are some movies that you've been inspired by that you actually think either stimulates the mind to think about new possibilities in sort of industry and manufacturing or, or have had some sort of profound impact on the way you're thinking about these things?
1: Uh, three, three movies come to mind. Um, uh, one of course like I think the one of the most famous uh, manufacturing scenes in any Hollywood film is uh, comes at the end of the terminators um, and uh, of course there's another another great uh, great great scene in, in manufacturing in minority report uh, in automotive manufacturing um, there I don't know I don't know of a, of a yet of a, of a story that's in, in the land of manufacturing even though there are great stories within there um, uh, there are so though in in, in books um, so I think probably the most famous one for the for the manufacturing nerds out there is the goal which is uh, it's like a, it's like a fiction version of a textbook <laughs> which is uh, a, an enjoyable uh, an enjoy- enjoyable read. Yeah, it is actually.
0: It's, um, but it's a funny, uh, funny thing that there aren't that many uh, things out there. It's, uh, it's certainly a lot more fascinating than it would seem if you don't dig into it. So I thank you for uh, reflecting on this uh, with us today and uh, hope to have you back on some other time, really.
1: Your time, it was fun.
0: You have just listened to episode 66 of The Augmented Podcast with host Thrun Arne Undheim. The topic was Bridging the Physical Digital Divide in Industrial Tech, and our guest was Roni Kubat, CTO and co-founder of Tulip. In this conversation, we talked about programming in a physical digital environment. My takeaway is that the physical digital environment is no joke. When you speak with a real technologist who not only has imagined what the future would look like, but who is involved in building it integrating software and hardware on the factory floor you realize how difficult it will be to transform industrial work. It is not just about industrial tech. It is about people. It is not just about neat software or fancy hardware. It has to work together and more importantly it has to fit into the overall context of what people are already doing. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at AugmentedPodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 44, no code for IoT in the cloud. Episode 47, Industrial Machine Learning or episode 29, The Automated Micro Factory. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with TULIP, the connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and assistance used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us in social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter, and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented. Industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.